Hi, I'm Lisa Clank. I was a staff writer on Star Trek Voyager for three years, and you're listening to Trek Untold. Star Trek podcast that goes beyond the stars. I'm your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. On today's episode, we're chatting with Lisa Klink, a writer, producer, and executive story editor in the Star Trek universe. Lisa began her trek into writing, if you will, while working on Deep Space Nine, where she wrote her very first episode of television ever with the episode Hippocratic Oath. From there, she joined the Voyager writing team, where she was part of crafting dozens of episodes, along with being credited herself as a writer for 14 of those episodes. During her time with the Voyager team as executive story editor, she oversaw many impactful decisions that affected the entire series and the franchise as a whole, and obviously, she's going to have some real big stories to tell about that. And that's why this is only part one of my interview with Lisa, since there were so many amazing pieces of information that only doing a single episode with her would have been a disservice to all of her accomplishments. So this episode is going to cover her early career, along with a handful of Voyager episodes, while part two will wrap up tales from that intrepid-class ship, along with some other forgotten Star Trek things that she wrote, and much more. It's a real honor to be able to deep dive into the material with Lisa and understand her reasoning and rationale behind what we ultimately saw played out on the screen. If you've listened to Trek Untold before, you know that many of the actors talk about how important the scripts are to clue them in into how to perform. Not just for the material itself to obviously be read, but to help them figure out what they should be doing, how they should be acting, things like that. And in this series of interviews with Lisa, we're going to get the full story of how those elements came together to create some absolutely memorable episodes. So stick around, here comes Lisa Klink, part one. But before we begin this week's episode, I want to remind you to follow Trek Untold on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Trek Untold, all one word. You can get show updates, check out some fun memes, and let me know what you think about what's going on with the current events in the Star Trek universe. You can also support this show directly on Patreon at patreon.com slash trekuntold, where you can support this show for as little as $2 a month. At higher tiers, you can listen to the shows before they come out, know about my guests well in advance, and even have a chance to ask them questions, get transcripts of these episodes to make sure you get all the info, and more benefits coming soon, including watch parties and live streams. But that's all dependent on more fans like you coming over and letting me know you want to be a part of events like that. If you want some Trek Untold merchandise, check out our store for gear and apparel, including shirts, hats, stickers, water bottles, notebooks, and a whole lot more. New designs will be added throughout the year, so it's always worth taking a peek. Trek Untold also has an Amazon shop where you can peruse everything Star Trek, sci-fi, and geeky on Amazon in one convenient location. If you're looking for a gift for the Trekkie in your life, or maybe want to see some of my favorite non-Star Trek things that you can get for yourself, check out the link for my Amazon shop in the show notes on the audio version and in the description below this video on YouTube. If you're listening to us on iTunes or any other audio platforms that allow for ratings and reviews, please leave us a five-star rating and a positive review to help out this show. If you're watching it on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe to us at youtube.com at Trek Untold and give the video a thumbs up and a comment. 
All of these things help more people find this show and to continue growing and bringing you awesome guests each and every week. Now, without further ado, let's beam in this week's guest. Computer, access interview file. And welcome back to Trek Untold. And now joining us on the other side of the screen, she's a writer on DS9 and Voyager and eventually became an executive story editor, as well as a writer and producer on a host of other shows. Uh, and man, it is a real privilege and honor to be able to talk with you today. We're joined by Lisa Klink. Lisa, how are you? I'm doing well. How about you? I'm doing great. I'm, I'm very, very legitimately excited to talk to you here. Like, you know, I haven't had a lot of writers in this show yet, and I'm happy I get to start correcting that now. And you, you wrote some really awesome episodes of uh, Voyager, and especially the one DS9 one too, which we'll get to. But man, you've done some amazing work on Star Trek and other things. Hopefully, we'll have some time to talk about too. But uh, man, no, I, I'm so, so happy to have you here. So, oh, uh, glad to be here. Yeah, let's just, I guess, begin our deep dive of who is Lisa Kling and all the work that she's done, <laughs> and. Uh, Let's start at the very beginning here, Lisa. I'd love to know, what's your earliest memory of Star Trek? Uh, probably Next Generation in college. Um, that's really kind of what got me started, uh, is that, you know, everybody in our dorm would get together, you know, and, and watch Next Generation. And uh, so it was really kind of a communal experience, and that's really what got me hooked. Had you known much about, like, the original series or anything before that? Or was it just kind of like, here's TNG, this thing's really cool, I'll get to the other stuff later? It, it was like that. It was it was more I was just kind of getting into this this new show that was on. And then, oh, yeah, this has a long history. Yeah, that's an understatement. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I'd like to get a little bit more background information about you, too, before we start talking Trek too deep. Uh, I'd love to hear about who your parents were and what they did for a living and what little Lisa wanted to be when she grew up. <laughs> uh, let's see. My parents, um, my dad was American and my mother's Norwegian. And they met in uh, North Africa. Wow. Uh, actually, when uh, my dad was working for um, for the U.S. government, and my mom was also uh, an assistant at the U.S. Embassy there. Uh, so they met in Tunisia uh, and then uh, got married and moved back to Washington, D.C., where I was born. Uh, and then we moved around a bit. We moved to San Francisco and then back to Maryland for a while and back out to um, around Los Angeles. Um, and then my folks moved to Florida. And I went to college in North Carolina at Duke. Uh, and then after that, got in the car and drew up out to Los Angeles. And did you know at a young age you were going to be a writer? Is that what you wanted to do? I did not know. Um, I, I always liked stories. I liked telling stories. And I loved reading. Uh, and I was always a big movie and TV fan. Hmm. Um, I think when I first, I, I was an English major at college. And I think I had some idea of maybe going into journalism or possibly going to law school uh, until I took a film class at Duke. Um, they didn't have much of a film department. It was like film theory class more than production. Um, but they had a producer come out from Hollywood, uh, Tom Mount. Um, and he talked about um, movies that he had done. And it was sort of the first time I had ever encountered somebody who did this for a living. And it, and it sort of dawned on me for the first time that this was something I could do for a living. Uh, <laughs> and so that's really what got me going. Kind of curious to know also, I mean, we talked to a lot of folks who, uh, you know, maybe their parents were in the military and they had to move around a lot or for whatever reason, they didn't really have like roots, let's say, in one part of the country. So for a lot of them, they discovered acting as their like really easy way to make friends wherever they went and just kind of fit in. But, you know, we're talking about someone who wants to do writing, right? 
and do English. And basically you're reading books, you got your nose in the books, maybe some comic books. Uh, so, I mean, for you, like, was it more that you were kind of trying to isolate yourself from me? Not isolate, but you just maybe had more trouble fitting in as opposed to somebody who was acting that, like, wanted to be more outgoing and in there with people. Well, I think it was it was more just that I, I had to amuse myself a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, I was an only child. And like I say, we did move around a lot. Um, and so I think it was it was more just me kind of uh, left my own devices, you know, to figure out something entertaining. And so I read a lot and, and I wrote stories and, and watched movies. Now, were you like into sci-fi stuff? Did you have a certain genre you liked or uh, did sci-fi just come later on in your life? No, I, w- I was always into sci-fi ever since Star Wars. Yeah. Uh, that was kind of what, what broke me in. And I, I have always been a huge sci-fi fan. Do you have any favorite movies that you uh, love to talk about? Uh, let's see. Well, the Star Wars movies, obviously. Um, you know, those, again, those were a really big influence on me. Um and uh, Terminator, Terminator Two, Ooh, uh, Alien and Aliens. A lot of the Jim Cameron stuff was was really influential for me. Uh, I wanted to be James Cameron for a long time. That was kind of when I first came up to Los Angeles. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to direct action movies. Um, and then I ended up actually working for a director for Catherine Bigelow, and I was writing reading scripts for her and reading a lot of stuff that really wasn't very good. Um, but was going on to get made. And that's what kind of encouraged me. It's like, well, well, I can write stuff this bad, you know. <laughs> and really, that's kind of what, what shifted me over from wanting to direct to wanting to write, um, is that I wanted to be in kind of earlier in the storytelling process. Rather than just interpreting somebody else's words, I wanted to be coming up with my own stories. So, yeah, we, we're kind of now in L.A., right? So you're out of Duke, and now you're over in L.A. working. So you mentioned now, you're, at that point, you wanted to kind of direct and do stuff like that. I mean, were you taking jobs as, like, PAs and things like that on set? Like, what was your kind of journey uh, to get to this, to get to basically get into Hollywood, essentially? Um, well, I, I read scripts for free for a while, which is kind of something you have to do. Um, <laughs> but then I got a job actually getting paid, you know, to read scripts for Catherine. Um, and then I was became her development assistant. Um, which again was just such such a good crash course in scripts and script analysis because I had to analyze every single one of them and figure out what worked and what didn't work and whether I thought it would work for Catherine and so it really was like grad school uh, which was fantastic. I mean, do you remember some of the really horrendous scripts that you read? I'd love to hear about any real stinkers. Uh, I don't remember a lot of the stinkers. I do remember that I passed on a couple of things uh, that got on went on to get made. I passed on. Um, uh, Braveheart. Um, <laughs> that script came to Catherine, and I said, "Oh no, I don't think that's going to be a great movie." <laughs> a couple of things like that. So, all right. So, when was the first time you actually ever got to go on a set somewhere? Because this is stuff you're basically doing in an office, right? I mean, was basically Star Trek yeah. the first set you ever walked on? Uh, no, uh, actually, when when, Ka- when I was working for Catherine, she was directing Strange Days. Hmm. Um, so I got to go down and visit her on the set, and that's actually one of the things that made me realize I did not want to be a director after all. <laughs> Um, because being a director is, is like being at the center of the storm. You know, it's like everything, everybody's there shooting questions at you and everything, you know, is, is waiting for your decision and for your action to go. And I, I just found that kind of overwhelming. And I really, my, my temperament is much more suited to being in a room by myself writing or to be in a writer's room, you know, with a bunch of other writers and tossing around story ideas. Um, but I, I'm not, I think extroverted enough to be a director <laughs> yeah it's not an easy thing to do especially because it is, it is a pretty not. chaotic hectic thing i mean I've, I've been on a bunch of sets also and it's you know 
number one, it's a lot of wait and go, which can just be annoying too, especially if you don't have a lot of patience, like I don't. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, no, it's, it can just be kind of awkward too. It's like, you're just trying to figure out what the heck you're doing. And then when it's time to go, it's just absolute madhouse. Yeah. So, you know, I do want to come back to our, our Trek journey here, but there is something I want to talk about that you did a little bit afterwards and we'll, we'll definitely just come back and uh, circle into Trek because that's what this show is. But, uh, I want to ask you about something else on your resume here, uh, and that's Hercules, The Legendary Journeys. Yes. And yes, yeah, so you came in around season five, and I think one episode in season six also, to do a few episodes, uh, which were centered around Hercules and Aeolus, who I guess his mm-hmm. character, I believe, had just like died or was about to be resurrected uh, around the time you were writing for the character. So um, I kind of want to talk a little bit about you know your craft here. We'll get real deep into this as we go into Trek especially, but... You know, when you're walking into a series, season five, it's got it's a show that's got, you know, a lot of stuff already behind it. How the heck do you figure out what's going on and how do you jump on in and just start writing for these well-established characters? Well, you really rely on the other writers, the staff writers and the showrunner to kind of bring you up to speed. Um, because, this, you know, the episodes that I had watched of Hercules, of course, they had written a whole bunch more since then that I had not seen. And, you know, and so that showed me a lot of the scripts and kind of gave me an idea of where they were going with the characters and what, what kind of stories they were looking for. And, uh, you know, so I kind of pitched with that in mind of, you know, what what kind of stories that they they wanted to tell. And it's the same for any series. Um, you know, once it's one that has already been going is that you can you can do a bunch of research on your own, but you really rely on your fellow writers. I mean, did you enjoy writing for these particular characters? Because, you know, as we mentioned again, this is season five, and this is a pretty dark and gritty Hercules stuff. You know, like when I was watching when I was younger, I remember it being a lot more lighthearted. And like this part of Hercules, and even I guess by this point in Xena, things are starting to get more adult in tone. So, uh, you know, I'm kind of curious how you felt about where they were at this point and what you were doing with them. And, you know, again, since these are very well-established characters, I mean, do you feel like that prohibits you from flexing your creative muscles? Uh, or is it kind of just like, this is fine, I can do this, I'm going to still make them into my own people? I, I like diving into a series that, that already is there. Uh, I mean, I've never been on from the very beginning of a series. And so I've always had to come in and pick up on characters that already exist. And I kind of like that. Uh, I like having having some things that already exist, you know, the world and the characters and kind of being able to sort of play in that sandbox, hmm. um, you know, rather than having to invent absolutely everything in the universe. You know, there are certain sort of bases that you need to hit. Um, and I, I like that. So uh, I, I kind of enjoy, you know, stepping into a world that somebody else has created. Um, and Hercules was a lot of fun. I mean, even though, yeah, it was sort of, you know, relatively darker, you know, for that series, it was still just kind of a hoot, you know, I mean, just sort of to write, you know, sort of in contemporary style for these mythic characters. Um, I, I, th- I had a really good time doing that. Yeah, I think your episode arc also had like Gina Torres, who later go on to do Firefly and uh, mm-hmm. a bunch of other really fun stuff. So yeah, she was great. Yeah, I mean, did you get a chance to actually visit the sets when her and the rest of the crew were performing at all? I don't know how often. I mean, again, we'll talk about this later on. I keep saying that, but uh, I, mean, I don't know quite <laughs> how often you visit the sets. But were you able to go watch Hercules be shot? No, I was not. Uh, they were shooting in New Zealand, um, and so I, I did not have a chance to to fly on down there and, and go to the set, which was too bad because that would have been fun. They should have. I don't know why they didn't. I mean, come on, why not? <laughs> so, you know, you're you're reading scripts for Catherine Bigelow, and, you know, you've taken your, your time at Duke, but in terms of learning how to actually write a script and the right way to write a script, was a lot of this just from your observations of your job at that point? Yes. Wow. Uh, I mean, in, in college, I had written plays, 
uh, and I'd read screenplays, but I hadn't actually tried to write a screenplay until I came out to Los Angeles. Um, and, you know, I wrote a couple of action screenplays that were not very good. Um, and kind of, but yeah, really kind of educating myself by doing it. And it seems to be kind of the best way to do it, but you were really thrown into the deep end. Cause like we said, I mean, you're reading Braveheart. So, I mean, you're really going <laughs> to look at like some serious deep scripts here. So, yeah. you know, for any folks out there who are aspiring script writers who want to do what you've done, uh, you know, what are some of the biggest mistakes you saw when you were reading scripts that would just make you say no? Uh, the biggest thing that it would make me pass is if the character did not have a journey. Um, because in television, you know, you can kind of spread a journey out over a lot of seasons. You know, you could, the characters don't tend to change really radically. But in a screenplay, during those two hours, they need to change. Mm. They need to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. Yeah. And a lot of the characters stayed kind of flat, which was always a pass. Um, and then, there, of course, there were scripts that were just the plot. The plot was just nonsense. You know, <laughs> that it's it was clearly just designed to have, you know, a couple of cool action set pieces. And then everything else was kind of, you know, whatever. Um, so that was an easy pass as well. Did you read any like books or anything like that? Like, so I, I personally have like, I think it's called the Screenwriting Bible. And I've read mm -hmm. some other things by Sid Mead. I mean, were there any books uh, that you flocked to that kind of helped your education? I'm sure I read a couple of those, like Save the Cat, you know, kind of books. Uh, I don't remember off the top of my head what specific ones, but I'm sure I read a couple of them. So I'm kind of curious now also, you know, we're talking about your job reading scripts. How do you find your way into the offices of the good folks at Star Trek? Uh, well, I went to a Star Trek convention um, in which they had a writer's panel. And it was uh, Ron Moore and Brian Braga and I think Joe Minoski. Um, were, were the writers and, you know, cause I was really interested in that show and I was interested in writing and they told it, the audience that if you sent in a sample script, somebody would read it. Hmm. And I thought that sounded like a terrific deal. I was like, I like that show. I could write one of those. So I wrote a sample of a next generation episode and sent it in. And fortunately I had no idea how many thousands of scripts they got every year. I, I might've been too intimidated. Uh, but I did, I, I wrote a script and I sent it in. And based on that script, I got called into pitch for Deep Space Nine, which was just getting started. Hmm. So I went in and I pitched Deep Space Nine, I think three or four times, no, four times um, before I ended up selling an, an episode to them. Wow. And that was the same episode or was this like different episodes you were pitching? Uh, I pitched a whole bunch of different episodes. Uh, the one I eventually sold was the, what, the story that turned into Hippocratic Oath. Yeah. But yeah, I definitely want to ask you some questions about that. Cause that's a great episode, but uh, I'm, I'm kind of curious to hear what was that TNG spec script? Do you remember what that was about? I do. I remember I wanted to take the characters and kind of take them out of their comfort zone. So I had Jordy. Uh, there was a group of aliens on board that communicated sort of telepathically, but Jordy could pick it up with his visor. And they were very, very emotional aliens and they were very volatile and so he had to kind of process these these the storm of emotions coming from these aliens because we were trying to get information from them and trying to forge an alliance with them and so i wanted to put him in the position of having to deal with emotions and so he was kind of leaning on counselor troy to try and help him interpret and and process all of this um and trying to figure out just for himself, why he had trouble maybe handling some of these emotions and why he had chosen to be an engineer and why his best friend was an android um, and uh, had fun with that character. 
Uh, you were getting deep pretty early on there with Jordy. That's that's some pretty deep stuff there with him to explore. Yeah, well, that was the fun part. And I do like how you said we, but when you were like, you know, we were trying to form alliance. I'm like, so we're all part of Starfleet. I love that. I love how you're thinking yes. about that too. <laughs> yes, we are. So yeah, let's talk Hippocratic Oath now because, you know, great episode. I've actually had a few folks who were on that episode on this podcast before. Uh, so let's just kind of talk about writing process here. And I guess first things first, I mean, where do you begin once you've got your script approved? How do you start? What's the preferred method for you to uh, begin? Well, first you come in and pitch. Um, and I had pitched this really like well-worked out story. I mean, I mean, way, way too much detail, um, you know, that went on for, for a while. And out of that long pitch, they took three words, Bashir in jail. <laughs> <laughs> The good because I, I, wa- I wanted to do something with that character, again, taking him out of his comfort zone. And I wanted to throw him in this nasty alien prison where he had to kill to survive and, you know, sort of, you know, take this sort of young idealistic guy and, and really, you know, kind of force him to, to get down and dirty. Um, and so once we had sort of settled on that premise, then we sat in the Deep Space Nine writer's room and started talking about like prisoner of war movies and, you know, Stalag uh, 17 and The Great Escape and kind of what, what kind of situation we wanted to put him in. And we talked about uh, Bridge Over the River Kwai and, um, you know, Bashir being kind of the Alec Guinness uh, role. And then we talked about O'Brien being the William Holden role. Um, and that was kind of the, the premise that they sent me off to script with. You know, we, we, we broke down the whole story in, in the writer's room, you know, broke down every scene, you know, that was going to be in it. And then I had to go off and write the draft. And then I came back and they gave me notes. I went off and wrote another draft. And then from there, Ron Moore took over the rewrites and added some really good stuff. Uh, so I was really grateful to have him take over for me. That's one of the things that's always like gotten me shook up when I think about like writing and especially like, on Star Trek. It's very much a collaborative process. Very much. But I'm always like, you know, when I hear rewrites, I'm like, oh, man, the first time you had a rewrite, but especially by someone like Ron Moore. I mean, did it kind of hurt to see your words kind of change or some of your thoughts change around? Or were you just like, huh, that actually is really good? No, I I was I was really pleased that I had a chance to write a couple of drafts of it myself because uh, I had actually done an internship on Deep Space Nine, uh, a writer's guild internship in which I got to sit in on the pitches, I get to sit in on writers' meetings, and I knew that most of the time they would just buy a story from somebody and then write the script in house, and so the fact that I had a chance to do a couple of drafts myself was already such a privilege. So, how many drafts do you remember uh, this episode actually being? Like I said, I did two, and then Ron did at least one, and then of course there's always production drafts, um, you know, that just for practical and, and budget reasons. So I, I don't know what color pages we got to with, with the Hippocratic Oath, like no, periwinkle pages maybe, or turquoise, or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I, I like what you said also about like the bridge over the river Kwai. That's something I never really considered uh, with this episode, but now that you mentioned, I'm like, okay, I see that. That's that's really oh, yeah. cool. And, that basically like fills in my next question for me too, which is going to be you know more about how you figure out this episode, which is essentially you know the ethics of being a doctor during wartime. Um, yes, and that that is like a pretty deep, heavy topic, though. I mean, you know, you, you were thinking of taking him out of his comfort zone, but were there any like contemporary issues or anything else that like put an influence on you to throw that at this year? No, it was really character based. Uh, I mean, that that's always where good stories start uh, is is with character. And to try and figure out how to challenge this particular character and what would what would be really a challenge for him that might not necessarily be as much of a challenge for somebody else. You know, what what really would test this guy? 
Yeah, it seems like that's very much like the makings of any good like show or film is, you know, there's the word conflict that gets thrown around a lot and I'm sure writers rooms and like everywhere. Uh, but it's not yeah. necessarily always like, you know, punch, kick, explosion conflict. It's very much, yeah. what do you do like, when you take the guy out of the comfort zone? Yes. Yeah. So Yeah. And, and have him make a really difficult decision. I mean, that's that's gold. So, I mean, did you like start out having like that difficult decision in mind? Is that how you kind of then structured the episode? Well, again, we structured it kind of like Bridge on the River Kwai, in which we had the doctor being given basically an assignment, you know, to try and come up with a cure, you know, for for this drug addiction that had been engineered into the Jemadar and had him, you know, at first, obviously he was, it was against his will, but then he kind of became invested in the project and became, you know, began to sort of imagine what happens if I can actually do this? What if I can actually cure the Jemadar? Uh, and then put that in contrast to O'Brien, you know, who was a soldier, and his point of view would be, we absolutely do not help the enemy under any circumstances. Hmm. And so the chance to take two of our heroes and put them at odds with each other was fantastic. Because that doesn't happen a lot in Star Trek. Most of the time, if you're in Starfleet, you know, everybody kind of gets along and, and sings Kumbaya together. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, to take these two characters who are really very different people and who are friends, but but came from very different backgrounds, and to have them be directly at odds with each other, but neither of them exactly wrong. Hmm. You know, I, I, I really enjoyed that, uh, that opportunity. I mean, I think this is really like one of the very formative episodes for Bashir's character also. And what we see of him as he goes on and progresses, like, I think this one's a real landmark kind of for him and, and the way he thinks and the way he will think by the time you get to like season seven. Mm-hmm. Now, did you uh, watch this? I'm going to assume the answer is yes here, but did you watch this one when it came out on TV? Oh, of course. Had yeah. friends over. <laughs> so what do you think of how it came out? I mean, I don't know if you got a chance to walk on this set either at all, but I mean, what do you think of the final product? I, I, thought, it, I thought it came out really well. Um, I, I did get down and visit the set a few times. Um, and I, I think those actors are both very good. Um, and so I think that they really, you know, took, you know, took what I had intended and ran with it, uh, you know, to really kind of take their characters and, and their, their own points of view. And we should add, too, this episode was directed by Rene, by Odo himself. Uh, and that must yes. have been a real treat to have. Like, not just your first episode get done and it's Star Trek DS9, but also directed by one of the stars. That's an amazing yes. thing. Yeah, so I, I thought he did a very good job. And now, do the directors typically have any input in what you do? In what the writers do? Yeah. No. no that's very far removed. <laughs> um, typically, there is not an awful lot of conversation between the writers and the directors. Um that generally goes through the executive producer um, because it's easy. It's easier to keep sort of a cleaner line of communication um, so that the executive producer is the one talking with the writers and also talking with the directors and talking with the actors and talking with the crew. And so the, the executive producer has kind of the vision that gets shared with everybody uh, rather than people kind of, you know, making their own decisions that might affect other people without consulting them. In a way. Well, get ready for a lot more basic questions like that for me, because, uh, yeah, this, this whole process is such a, a mystical thing, I feel like. I feel like the whole way of TV shows get made <laughs> it is such a weird thing, and, like, it's very much kept quiet. So, uh, yeah, I'm going to thank you right now in advance for uh, answering a lot of stupid questions like that. <laughs> <laughs> Trek Untold will return momentarily. Trek Untold is sponsored by Triple Fiction Productions. Celebrating 15 years in business in 2023, TFP creates 3D-printed Star Trek and sci-fi-inspired items that fit into any collection. Whether you're a cosplayer who wants a Starfleet phaser, Bajoran tricorder, or a Klingon dagger, 
or a toy collector looking for that special accessory or diorama to make your figures truly stand out, Triple Fiction Productions has exactly what you need. And for you figure fanatics, that includes products that are the perfect size for Galoob, Nego, Playmates, and everything in between. All products are 3D printed in the US, with new designs constantly being updated on their website. Repeat customers can sign up for TFP's loyalty program for free which is a great way to save money as you build your collection. Repeat customers can sign up for TFP's loyalty program for free, which is a great way to save money as you build your collection. Repeat customers can sign up for TFP's loyalty program for free, where the more you order, the more discounts you receive. TFP also has a pay what you want section where clearance or misprinted items are available at a discounted price. Best of all, every product can be shipped worldwide. As a special bonus for listeners of this show, Trek Untold has a special discount code just for you. Enter UNTOLD10 at checkout for 10% off of all orders with no minimum purchase required. That's 10% off using UNTOLD10. To see all of their products, head to triple-fictionproductions.net. Or to stay up to date on their newest products, find them on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Triple Fiction Productions, where something is only impossible until it happens. Are you looking for the perfect fashion statement to show you're a geek and proud of it? Well, welcome to Geek Girls Castle, where I make fun and functional geeky clothing and accessories for every occasion. My name is Missy, and I started creating my own gear and apparel in 2015 to bring nerdy products to the geek girl population, which does include all LGBTQA+, non-binary, and POC and BIPOC folks. I couldn't find anything for us gals except t-shirts, so I decided to combine my passion for fashion with my fandoms, ranging from handmade skirts with really large pockets, travel accessories like toiletry bags, luggage tags, and zippered pouches. I also embroider nerdy items for home decor like wall hangings and hand towels, and products like keychains, bookmarks, and journal covers. Need something to carry all that in? Well, I make great bags to put all those accessories into or onto. Whether you like Star Trek, Star Wars, Doctor Who, Marvel, DC, and everything else in between, there is something for every geek girl. My website is constantly updated with new styles and fandoms, no matter what time or dimension you come from. If you'd like to browse my products or ask for something custom, visit me at geekgirlscastle.com. That's geekgirlscastle.com. So I don't know if this was intended to be or not, but I'm curious how you kind of now found your way from there into the world of Voyager. I mean, was DS9 kind of like your audition, essentially, for Voyager? It turned out to be, yes. Um, Voyager was just getting started, and they were looking for for an entry-level staff writer. And so Iris Stephen Baer, who was the exec producer of Deep Space Nine, passed, was, was happy with the script that I had done, and he passed it along to Jerry Taylor, uh, who was the exec producer of Voyager, and said, if you're looking for a writer, take a look at this girl. And she did, and, and they were happy with my script, so they offered me the job at Voyager. That's got to be an easy commute, just walking from the DS9 office over to the Voyager office, right? Yes. <laughs> yes, it was fantastic. <laughs> now, your very first episode on Voyager was the one titled Resistance, where yes. uh, you're credited for the teleplay with the story mm-hmm. that was written by Michael Jan Friedman and Kevin J. Ryan. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Michael Jan Friedman, of course, folks out there will know his name for sure because he wrote so many of those DC Marvel comics, which are really great. We're going to talk about those in another, another episode, but... Uh, I guess let's, again, kind of break down some terminology here first. Uh, what exactly is a teleplay? Uh, well, to divide up the story by a teleplay, I mean, uh, those two writers came in and pitched, mm-hmm. you know, much like I had been at, D- at Deep Space Nine. But on Voyager, we bought their story and then handed it to me to write the teleplay. So your job is basically um, structured into an actual script for television. 
Yes. I mean, a pitch is maybe like half a page, you know, written out. And then we take that and we, and we break it down into scenes. Um, you know, that's the story room that usually takes a couple of days, you know, where all the writers sit together and we have a whiteboard and we have the, you know, the writer's guild intern standing at the whiteboard, writing in, you know, everything that everybody says. And so once we've broken it down into scenes like that, then the individual writer, in this case, me, you know, would go off and write the actual script, including the dialogue and all the, the stage directions and all that kind of stuff. And that document is usually, I don't know, 50, 55 pages of script uh, for an hour long show. That's a lot of stuff. Uh, yeah, usually it's like about a minute a page, essentially, right? It's approximately a minute a page. It, it was a little faster paced uh, on, on Star Trek um, because the, the finished um, episodes would come out at about, I think, 42 or 43 minutes. So, you know, this episode here is particularly a really great one for Janeway because it lets her be not only a kick-ass leader, but it also lets us kind of see some vulnerability of Janeway without her really mm-hmm. looking weak in any way. You know, like, mm-hmm. I feel like, you know, to be honest, this episode really needed a woman's touch to kind of keep that spirit intact and, and to be able to show both with just like perfect balance. So, uh, oh, you thanks. know, yeah, so I'd like to hear a little bit about, you know, what your thoughts were on how you developed this. Because, you know, you have, again, we mentioned uh, this was the pitch by MJF and by Kevin J. Ryan. Um, but, you know, at this point now, you're taking it and you're running with it. So what's your plan for Janeway and how you want to, like, show her and keep that balance? Uh, well, the, the, the trick, obviously, was her relationship with, with this alien. Yeah. Um, you know, which it's this alien who is, who is delusional. And trying to figure out how, how Janeway would approach this, you know, because obviously she's a very compassionate person. And so she would approach it from, from that place, you know, not trying to tell him, oh, you're, you know, you're an idiot, you're stupid, you know, you're hallucinating, you know, but that she would try and, and understand where he was coming from. And that's something that we, we didn't get a chance to see with Jane Bay very often, yeah. you know, because normally it was her laying down the law and people have to kind of obey what she says. But in this case, when she was sort of dependent on this alien, you know, for, for basically she was, you know, he was protecting her. You know, and also to find out where her uh, her people were being held captive and how she was going to get off the planet and all that kind of thing. And so it was really, from her point of view, what would be the best way to to compassionately deal with this guy? You know, there was so much, like, backlash when it was first announced that there would be a woman captain leading the show. And I feel like, uh, yeah, that, that, exactly. My point exactly. And I feel like, you know, there's a lot of uh, people, especially in those early days of writing for her character, that maybe didn't quite get her. And yeah. we're trying to make her like too strong and too chiseled and too much of just kind of like a cliche. Uh, so, you know, I really love what you did with her, but I'm curious to hear what, you know, what your thoughts are on like essentially, I guess, kind of breaking the facade of Janeway and turning her into an actual three dimensional human like you did here. Well, the the great thing with, with Kate and her performance is that she was in charge. You had yeah. no doubt about it. I mean, she was yeah. absolutely as soon as she, I mean, and, and it was the same was true with for the actress. I mean, as soon as she walked on set, she was in charge. And so I think that when you have that kind of unquestioning authority, you know, then you can, that gives you some, some leeway to kind of explore what else is there, um, you know, without, without weakening the character. Um, and so, uh, like I said, it, it all, it all starts with character kind of taking her off of the bridge and out of the captain's chair and putting her in the, in the situation that she's not used to, which is being vulnerable and, you know, being, you know, having to, again, having to deal with this captain, with this alien, not as a captain, but as, as a, as a fellow being, <laughs> I would say, I was going to say human being, but it's not quite right. Um, you know, but on, on that very human level. 
Yeah. Um, and so I, I really enjoyed the chance to to take her uh, again out of her comfort zone and and see what else what else there was to her. I mean, there are so much sensitivity and nuance in the words that are then expertly played by Kate Mulgrew. And, uh, you know, it's, it's also not count down here that this episode also has Jill Gray in that role of yes. the alien, which like, wow, by the way, wow, what a performance. And like, how crazy was it to see that guy saying your words out loud? That was pretty amazing. Um, I got to say, he, he gave me the best compliment I've ever had, which was that uh, apparently they had been trying to get him to do episodes of Star Trek for years. It, you know, sent him all these scripts and he kept saying no and kept saying no. And then when he got my script, he finally said yes, uh, that this was an alien, this is a role that he wanted to play. And I think that that was just the basically the nicest thing anybody's ever said to me. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I want God to go to the set and meet him and and uh, actually met Kate on the same day because it was the first, you know, first script of mine that I had done. Uh, and it was it was just wonderful. I, I thought that it was such a coup, you know, to get him to to be in my in my script and to say my words. And talk about amazing guest stars. That's like one of the top ones. I feel like people don't talk about enough, but like legend, legend right there. Yes. And, you know, since you did mention visiting sets, I do want to come back to that point. But I'm kind of wondering, you know, this episode here, mostly on kind of an, another planet. But mm-hmm. for any episodes that you were, that were more on the ship, let's say. Did you get to visit the bridge? And more importantly, did you sit in the captain's chair? <laughs> uh, I did visit the bridge pretty frequently. I did not sit in the captain's chair. Uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I read a couple of episodes that were essentially bottle shows, which means that, you know, we, we were only on the standing sets and do not go down to a planet or, or another ship. Um, and so during those episodes, uh, you know, all, all I had, the only place to visit was the, the, the set. So we've been talking a lot so far about kind of conflict within character and character development. And uh, this kind of brings us to the next episode I want to talk about, next one chronologically that you did, which was Innocence, which uh, I've read was one of your favorite episodes, by the way, which is yes. that true? Yes, it is. Oh, good, good. Yes, yeah, I got to tell you, it's one of mine now, too. Uh, you know, I, I love this one here because it's like Tuvok literally is a fish out of water in this one. And yep. yeah, the conflict here is Tuvok, stoic Tuvok versus children, <laughs> wild, <laughs> crazy children. And yeah, I'd love to kind of hear like your thought process on who Tuvok was. And I guess also, why did you choose Tuvok to be the character central to the storyline when let's say you could have had Bellana who would have been like yelling and thrashing at the kids. or again, <laughs> You could even have the captain herself and had like maybe a situation that would have been the equivalent of Picard being trapped in a turbo lift with those kids. So, yeah. I mean, why, why Tuvok? Well, we had established that he had kids uh, back on Vulcan, that he had, he had a wife and children. And that kind of intrigued me, you know, the, just the concept of Vulcans as parents, you know, because it is, it is such an emotional role, yeah. you know, and, and teaching these children who presumably are not born logical, you know, how do you, how do you train kids to be logical? And just that process of like a Vulcan as a father really kind of intrigued me. Um, and I mean, Vulcans have always been some of my favorite characters as well, because I just, I, I really admire my, the, the logic, you know, based approach. I mean, that's something that I would I would aspire to myself. I mean, if I had to be any Star Trek character, I, I would want to be a Vulcan. And so, yeah, seeing seeing Tuvok as a father was really what intrigued me about that that premise. Now, we do know, jumping ahead, that you do write other Vulcans in, in other central storylines. But, you know, in general, first time especially writing a Vulcan, is it kind of hard to wrap your head around the sort of dialogue that they would say? No, I actually found it pretty easy. Um, I mean, the great thing about coming into a show that, that already exists is that you can hear the actors and, you know, hear them in your head while you're, while you're writing, you know? And so I knew 
how Tim Russ would would deliver a line. You know, I knew kind of I could hear his voice as I was as I was writing. And he, you know, he was such a good actor and such a good Vulcan because he would always kind of reveal what was underneath. You know, it wasn't just like robotic. It wasn't just stoic. I mean, you could always see what is he repressing. And so uh, I could I could sort of play with that, you know, for, for writing the character. And I knew that he would knock it out of the park. And shout out to the three kids also who had to play the, the kids on that planet. Uh, I'm wondering, were there any real life inspiration for those kids? Uh, no, no, <laughs> that was that was uh, totally imagination. And it was really just how could I make them more annoying to Tuvok? <laughs> well, mission accomplished because they were quite annoying to him. So, yeah, yes. definitely for sure. <laughs> uh, and one of the cool parts, too, about this episode is the twist ending. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and, and I guess we're going to kind of talk about story structure now. So when you're writing this one. What came first to you, the ending concept that was going to be basically, you know, where this episode leads to, or was it that you wanted to have basically Tuvok versus kids? Uh, Tuvok and kids was, was the premise that we started with. Um, and then I, I forget where during the process, the, the twist ending kind of came from because it doesn't really change the story. Yeah. Um, I mean, the story would work exactly the same way without, without that twist. Um, and so I, I probably came while we were breaking down the story, you know, into scenes and trying to figure out what is actually the deal with these kids and why, why are they being brought here to die? Basically. It's a really cool mystery. And it kind of like feels like an original TOS episode also, which makes it a lot of fun to watch. It's, it's yeah, mm-hmm. another real, real great one. And Tim Russ hanging out with kids is just hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I knew that was, that was, that was going to be a lot of fun. So let's jump into uh, remember, which was, uh, you know, uh, this is an interesting one here. Uh, so this is like, Another really great Star Trek take on fascism and Nazis to a lesser extent also that are kind of like wrapped up in this classic sci-fi style metaphor. So this is a big one here. Uh, I'm wondering, like, was this one of your like your pitch ideas or how does this come together? Because it's it's just a a real fascinating one to look at. I think this came from the entire staff. Um, Again, you know, just talking about. Talking about what 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 issues, you know, we want to address and. I forget where it came from, the idea of of sort of the rewriting history, hmm. you know, covering up the past and what happens when that gets exposed and having one of our characters be kind of in the middle of it. And from there, you know, we, we came up with the idea of, you know, these aliens that could sort of transfer their memories and that Bolana, you know, had these memories that seemed like dreams and then it turned out to be actual fact. Um, and it's, uh, so yeah, I, I think, I, again, it came, it came from putting Bolana in, in the middle of it. This is one of those really interesting ones too. Cause like I said, it, it feels very much like one of those older style treks that we'd see with in terms of the topic. Uh, and that topic is essentially social commentary, sociopolitical commentary. And, mm-hmm. you know, we're talking today about Voyager, but we jump ahead to modern times we're in right now, and there's all this like backlash, this nonsensical backlash against Star Trek being "quote unquote" too political. Uh, but it you know, always for, has been, yeah, always. Yeah, I mean, for Voyager especially, I mean, there's a lot of interesting things that they cover. But I feel like Voyager, uh, more so than like a lot of the other Treks from that time period, uh, kind of I, I want to say wrapped it up in more of a, a prettier picture in some ways. Like they they had that social commentary, but it wasn't quite as in your face, maybe. Uh, and like the way you yeah. guys did in this one, especially, I thought it was really clever. Like it was just really. The message is there, but it's like hidden and you got to kind of unwrap some layers to get into it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously that was the idea is that, you know, we wanted to, 
I remember uh, Michael Puller always used to ask, you know, what is this script about? Hmm. You know, not what is the plot, but, you know, what is, what are we trying to talk about? What issues are we, are we bringing up to discuss? Um, and so that's something that a question that got asked about every single script that we wrote. And I'm not a professional writer by any means, but I was a photographer for a little bit of time here. And I remember like hanging out with this reporter once. So we were shooting some event and uh, I was just taking pictures of like whoever the person was that day. I'm not going to name names, but and I was just running around getting photos and I was just asking him like, so what are you going to write about? And he was telling me he didn't know yet. And I was confused by that because like we're covering this event. Like, isn't that the thing? And he told me he's looking for the story within the story. And that always yep. stuck with me. Yep. That makes sense. Yeah, and I feel like that's like what a lot of Star Trek, when it's at its best, is. It's like finding that story within the story. And you writers yeah. got to basically find that, too. <laughs> yes, that's true. Yeah, which is, I'm sure, not an easy thing to do. Uh, and, and you mentioned that this might have been like one of those group project things, too. So uh, I would like to kind of ask, how the heck do you guys collaborate on something like that together? I've, I've never understood like the creative team process of how a script gets made. So uh, what does that look like in the writer's room? Uh, sort of controlled chaos. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you, you really have to have a good showrunner, uh, which we did in this case. Jerry Taylor was very good um, because the showrunner basically allows everybody to, to talk and, and to throw out ideas. And how about if we do this? And no, what, been a, what if it's like this instead? And how about if we try this instead? And the showrunner is the one that, that makes the decision that says basically, OK, I like that idea. We're going to go that way with it. You know, at which point, you know, you start going in that direction. Oh, how about if we turn this turn and have, and what it turns out that the kids are actually old, you know, and, and you kind of, but you have to have somebody steering the ship. Hmm. Um, and that's always the showrunner. And Jerry Taylor was very good about doing it in a, in, in a benevolent way, you know, not making you feel like your ideas were stupid or that you were wrong about anything, but that even ideas that, that we weren't going to go with could lead us to something else that might be interesting. Um, and so to, to work with a bunch of really smart, creative people, uh, in a room like that is about as much fun as you can have. I mean, aside from kind of getting a more understanding to this collaborative process for you personally, what did you learn from spending all that time with those people? Uh, I really had to up my game, <laughs> you know, really had to learn how to, how to not, not stay safe, you know, how to try, try different things and unusual things. And, you know, take an idea that I had and, and twist it around um, because all the everybody else around me was doing that. I mean, Brandon at uh, Braga especially was really good at kind of taking an idea and flipping it on its head and taking kind of the strange look at it. Um, and so I really, you know, was inspired by the other writers uh, to try and look outside the box and, and to stretch my imagination more. I mean, I want to like ask you to go into more detail on that, but I'm not even sure how to quite even ask that. Cause it's kind of like taking this, this weird big concept of, of flipping things on their heads. But I mean, yeah, taking risks is definitely, I, I feel like at the core of it. And a lot of the episodes we talked about so far very much are pretty risky. I mean, I wouldn't expect to ever have seen Tuvok hanging out with a bunch of kids or Janeway having this like <laughs> touching moment with this alien who's completely delusional, has whatever's going on with him. So, you know, I, I guess for you, like, how do you interpret flipping character onto the head? How do you make them do this flip? It's really, it's practice. It's, you, you have to do it. Um, it's something that you really can't teach, you know, without, without being in the room and, and seeing it happen and being part of it. Well, I got to do some homework. I got to go uh, hang out with some writers, I guess, more often. <laughs> I want to learn how to yeah, do that. Yeah, no, thing. I mean, uh, that, that's something that a lot of writers do is that they sort of form informal groups themselves. Huh. Um, that like what a writing you know, partner and, would do, and, essentially? I'm sorry? Is that like what the equivalent of having a writing partner would be like? 
Exactly. Exactly. Uh, you get together with a bunch of writers and you kind of, you know, work on stories together. And, you know, ideally when you're, when you're working with good people, you kind of bring out the best ideas from each other. It's like, well, whenever people talk about writers, I feel like it's always just in this kind of vein of like, they're just living alone in this dark room, writing their sad emo poetry, and then occasionally writing some stuff to get paid for. But it sounds like, like the best writers really are the ones who can go out of themselves and yes. like work with others and communicate with others to help flesh out ideas and kind of think about things in a different light. In TV, you have to, because TV is extremely collaborative. You know, if you're a screenwriter, then yeah, you can sit by yourself in a room and, and, you know, shove pages under the door as you finish them. But in television, it is very collaborative, which, which I love. Now, I want to spend a little bit of time also talking about rewrites and the general idea of rewrites, which we kind of hinted at a little bit already. Um, so I know like chronologically, uh, Dreadnought, I think came for you next, but that you were credited for the rewrites on that. So, uh, mm-hmm. you know, that episode was written by uh, Gary Holland, I believe. Um, but yes. you know, in general, I guess I'd like to hear a little bit, a bit of, uh, what exactly a rewrite entails. Like, are you completely restructuring the script? Is it just like some adjustments here and there? What what does that mean for you? You know, it varies so much from script to script. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it's it's just like a like a polish, basically. I mean, like for Hippocratic Oath, I mean that's what Ron Moore did with my script is we didn't have we didn't break it down and restructure the whole thing, but he added like you know lots of good dialogue and and kind of t- took it up to the next level. You know, took, taking what was already there, but refining it. Um, other scripts, um, you know, there are a couple of scripts that I rewrote that we basically had to sort of toss out the draft that existed and start over, um, you know, with, with just the premise. Um, and that's, that's, that's obviously more difficult and more work. And so what you're looking for is, is the script that you can just do a polish on. I mean, how often did that happen to you? And not necessarily talk about rewrites now, but just general scope of what you've done on Star Trek. You know, how often did you have to just like nuke a script and just start with a clean slate? Well, you don't usually have time. <laughs> uh, that, that's, I mean, that's the truth is once you start production, you know, the thing's going to start shooting on Monday. You have to make you, your script work. You know, you don't, you don't have time to start over. Uh, I mean, I think the fastest that I ever wrote a complete draft was like three days. Wow. Um, which was really too fast. But, you know, once the production train gets going, it does not stop. And, and you, you have to just keep sort of throwing scripts at it. And most of the time, you know, if you've bought a story, if you've already invested hours and hours into it, you have to you have to make it work. Yeah, I was wondering about the whole timeline with how these episodes are written, because like I know they're usually fast. I know shooting them is also like, you know, at light speed, if you will. But yes. uh, yeah, so, well, three days is pretty nutty. So I mean, like, but on a typical episode, I mean, what would be start to finish the normal, generally speaking, amount of time that your team would have to write an episode? Uh, well, at the beginning of the season, before production starts, um, you would have a few days in the writer's room to kind of break down the story and do an outline. And then the writer like or a freelance writer would typically get two weeks. Uh, to write a first draft of the script. I mean, that, that's a very sane amount of time to, <laughs> to write a script. So let's jump into another episode now, uh, and that's uh, Sacred Ground. This is, mm-hmm. again, another deep dive into Janeway's character. And mm-hmm. you know, I'd love to talk a little bit about the core message that you put into this one here, because it's like spirituality versus technology, taking a yes. leap of faith. Uh, I'm kind of curious. This, this feels like maybe there's like some personal stuff in this one here uh, for you. but Absolutely. Uh, Janeway was, was speaking for me, <laughs> I got to say. Um Yes. I mean, again, taking Janeway out of the captain's chair, out of her scientific comfort zone and putting her into an experience that maybe could not be explained in a, in a fully scientific way. That, that's what intrigued me about, about the story. Um, 
because like Janeway, I would I would kind of fight against it, <laughs> you know, and look for the scientific explanation, look for the rationality, you know, to, like when she was taking all these readings, all these bio readings and saying maybe it's a maybe it's these hormones or maybe it's this venom that, you know, interacts with this thing that I drank and, you know, looking for kind of the rational uh, explanation behind it, but ultimately having to face that maybe there are some things that you can't explain. Hmm. Uh, that's what really appealed to me about this story. So I mean, was Janeway like kind of acting as your avatar essentially in this world? Yes. Yes, she was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, for you then, I mean, if you don't mind me asking, um, I guess we're getting a little more personal here, but like for you then, what, what would be that question that you were kind of dealing with at the time that inspired you to write this episode? Uh, well, again, I think we got off a pitch. Um, I think that was the, the premise of beginning, you know, putting Janeway through a spiritual journey. Um, and once that story came to me, I really, you know, really embraced it because, it, like I said, it really that 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 battle of ideas is is really interesting to me. Yeah, I really like just the exploration that went on here with this character. Again, like we saw earlier in the first episode, we talked about with uh, yeah with Janeway. This one here is kind of same thing. And I, I at first, you know, I'll, if you don't mind a little nerdy critique here, I was like, oh, where's this thing going? But like once it happened, once things started moving, I was like really into this one. And very curious yeah. to see what Janeway was going to do and like how she would come to this resolution. So, you know, I just want to also talk about something else here. Uh, I love this one scene that you did and, and the tension in the scene where Janeway is putting her hand yeah, uh, in that in that I don't remember what it was, but she puts her hand in her thing, and it's like she's like trying not to get bit. Oh yeah. <laughs> and I just love like how tense it is because it's like there's always this mystery and risk involved in putting your hand in it, and yeah. it, you see it in so many other forms of media, some other movies and TV shows. Um, so you know, it's something we've seen a lot. But I'd like to kind of ask you, how do you as a writer avoid cliches and tropes and keep something like that fresh? Well, that is always the trick. Um, is because especially this is the with Star Trek. Now. Everything you've done has been done before. Hmm. <laughs> you know, I mean, that was, I cannot tell you how many conversations we had in the story room about, how about if we did this? No, wait, that was Star Trek 3. How about if we did this? No, that was season four of the original series, you know, of Next Generation. And just every, every idea that we had had been done before. And so the, the trick is to, is to figure out what, how, how, how was it done before? And maybe what is the opposite of that? Or, you know, what can we add? What, what is another layer that we can add to it to make it different? You know, if, if we have, you know, the, the snake in the basket, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, when she gets bitten, what happens? You know, and and I mean, uh, what I really liked was with the, the makeup department did they put three fang marks um, yeah. on her wrist, which I thought was great. So it's this alien creature that we've never seen and that we never do see. Um, and... And yet, you know, we can sympathize with what that experience must have been like because it was it was close enough to reality, you know, that we can imagine. It's like, you know, if you were reaching under your house and you knew that there's a snake under there or something, you know, it's it's a, a relatable feeling. Now, I'm wondering also, you know, I know that you eventually became the executive story editor on Voyager here. Uh, so when did you officially become staff on the show and how did you work your way up the, the ladder? Oh, well, I started off as staff, actually. Um, okay. I got hired on as, as a staff writer. Okay. Um, and then um, basically you get sort of your, your title gets bumped up every season. And so I was staff writer the first year, story editor the second year, and then executive story editor my third year. So as you're going along and writing Star Trek here, you know, I feel like I probably should have started the interview with this question. But like, is there a general guideline that you and the team kind of figured out essentially the core beliefs of what an episode should be? Uh, that would help separate Voyager from what other Star Trek shows were like? Well, the idea behind Voyager was that we did not have backup. 
you know, that we, we did not have Starfleet ready to come in and save us if we got in trouble. Hmm. And that was, that's what we always looked to, to make, to make Voyager different. Um, you know, that we had to make alliances with, with local aliens that we had never, you know, encountered before and maybe had to make some compromises and had to make some difficult decisions about, you know, what are we willing to trade, you know, in terms of technology with these people and, you know, with aliens like like the phage aliens, you know, who are really scary, but also kind of sympathetic, you know, to what extent were we willing to deal with them? And I I thought that's what really made it it interesting is that Janeway was, was on her own. You know, she was the ultimate authority on the ship. She did not have any admirals to, to go ask for permission you know, or to ask for assistance. I think it's one of the things that appealed to me also was the fact that like at any moment they all could just snap and do whatever they wanted, but they always just kind of stuck to what their core values were. Yes. And I guess, well, this next episode, I feel like we're going to like be completely ignoring core values. Cause we're talking about warlord now. Uh, yeah. I'd like to ask you a few questions about warlord. Cause that seemed like it was honestly just a really fun episode to write. Cause again, we're talking this whole interview today about flipping characters and, you know, kind of changing their, their what's going on with them. This one, Kess is doing something completely different because she is possessed by that warlord of the title for this episode here. So uh, do you remember how this one came about? Like, do you remember what the pitch was for this episode? I don't know off the top of my head. I mean, given that Kess had had some nascent psychic powers, um, I'm sure that the, the premise was that you know, she was basically possessed by the, the consciousness of, of an alien. And then we, we decided to make it basically as different from Kess as we possibly could, you know, this, this hostile tyrant, you know, this, this cruel warlord and have him take over her body. Um, First of all, you know, it gave the actress a chance to really try something different, uh, which was terrific. And, and, you know, Jennifer Ween was very talented. And so we knew that she could do it. Um, But then it also gave Kess, the character, a chance to, to fight back you know, to be, to be challenged in a really extreme way. I mean, to be challenged within her own mind and have to resist, you know, this very powerful alien presence. Yeah. I always felt like Kess was like one of the most underdeveloped characters on the show. Uh, do you feel the same way? Yeah. Unfortunately, we, we did not have a chance to to dig into her as much as, we, as much as it would have been nice to. I mean, was there a reason for that? Was it just that there's too many characters you guys didn't have, didn't have time for Kess or was there just maybe not as much like interest in her? Um, no, I, I think it really is more just having so many characters and having to really kind of focus on like Janeway, you know, who is, who was our star and who was, you know, the character that we wanted to explore the most deeply. Yeah, I think one of the really fun things about Warlord in particular is besides the fact that it has this like super serious title, it's also kind of really campy in like the yeah, best kinda. way possible. Uh, <laughs> so, I mean, you're writing now a real campy kind of fun episode. So how does that feel if you'd basically kind of like step away from the real deep philosophical sci-fi stuff and just have some fun with the characters? That that was that was a good time. I, I gotta say, because given a character like that, we could take it to the extreme. You know, we could have him be as as decadent and as corrupt and as nasty as possible, uh, and that's always fun. I'm curious if there was like any inspiration for the character Tyr, and like you know, was he meant to be kind of like sort of Hitler-like with some of the occult stuff going on with him? I mean, was it just kind of just a general bad guy? Like, like, was there any specific vibe you were going for with him? I don't think I had a particular inspiration. Again, the the inspiration was was the opposite of Cass. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, whatever whatever we knew about her, he was the polar opposite. So, like, how much of then the scripts would be essentially dictated by that kind of polar opposite thing? So that's I feel like the been the big theme of our interview so far is like taking one thing and putting it against the polar opposite. Mm-hmm. So, like, when, when you're writing a script, I mean, 
how do you play that into what you're thinking of? Because you, let's say you have your initial idea. How do you then find that polar opposite? And I feel like I've, I've asked this before. I'm just trying to phrase it in a different way, maybe. But like, yeah, how, how do these things collide? How do you make that happen? Uh, with help. Uh, I mean, again, this is this is where the writer's room is really useful um, because everybody kind of explores different elements of the characters in their own scripts. Um, and so, you know, with Kess, for example, you know, we had we had started to explore, you know, maybe somebody had done more of her relationship with Neelix and somebody had done more of her relationship with Tuvok mm. and, and exploring her psychic abilities. And so everybody kind of brings that knowledge, you know, to the writer's room and starts talking about, you know, well, when I was working, you know, exploring her relationship with, with Tuvok, here's kind of what I found out about the character and you could use it this way. Um, because we did have Tuvok, you know, be the one that basically came in and helped her out. Yeah. Um, and so really you, you rely on, on the staff. Uh, to kind of to create you know a 3D version of the character. I feel like I'm just trying to like ask this question that might not even have a real answer to it still. But I'm going to keep trying. I'm going to try and find a way to crack the code of Lisa Klink. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so Lisa, let me ask you a few questions too about Blood Fever. This one is another real fun one, also because uh, this is a Pond Far episode, and we have not yes. had a ton of Pond Far episodes in Star Trek history. And this one is about Ensign Vorik. Essentially, it starts off with Ensign Vorik, uh, who we established in Voyager a few episodes earlier. So, you know, I'm kind of curious about his character now because he we didn't exactly know he was going to be sticking around past this point. But we do know he was shown up, you know, a few episodes before this. So when you do that, I mean, are you essentially doing that because you had this episode in mind and you kind of wanted him to be there and be a little bit more established? Or was there yes. like some kind of other? OK, all right, yeah, there was. That was. The yes, plan. Uh, we, we knew that we had blood fever coming up, um, you know, because obviously you're working on several scripts ahead of, of where you're shooting. Um, and so once we knew that we, that he was going to play a big role in blood fever, we wanted to establish him as being part of the crew for, for several episodes before then. Now, at that point, did you already know that he was going to be sticking around for a whole lot longer or was it more just the fact that let's get him to this episode? It, it was really more to establish him for blood fever. But then of course, once we'd established him, you know, like, like any character on the ship, he's going to stick around. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, this one's really fun too. Cause uh, I, I love to hear about this. You've got. Belana and Tom essentially getting intimate for the very first time together. Mm -hmm. How do you write a Klingon love scene? <laughs> uh, well, kind of take again, take inspiration from from the scenes that have been done before. You know, I, I looked at a lot of you know like Worf and and his relationship like with uh, with uh, Kalar and you know with Deanna and with Jadzia and uh, what they had established before about about Klingons. And, you know, through all of that at, at Bellana. Right, that's, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, for sure. Uh, now, this episode was directed by Andrew Robinson, uh, who we all know as Garrick from DS9. Yes. Uh, so, you know, when you're watching this one back, what did you think of the work he did? I, I thought he did a great job. Uh, I really did. I, I was actually down on the set a lot for this one. Um, and I, th I thought that he really, I mean, the, this was kind of a tricky episode to, because it had such a balance, hmm. um, you know, with Tom and Bellana you know, with Bolana sort of, you know, going full force at Tom and him having to, to push her away, but in in a respectful way, but also to show that he really wanted her, but wasn't going to let himself. I mean, it was really a lot of, I thought, pretty subtle emotions yeah. uh, that the actors did a really good job with. And that I thought that Andy Robinson really brought out very nicely. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about that Bolana tom relationship, because you know, at this point, this episode in particular, I feel like this is where things kind of get even more serious. And mm -hmm. once we get into season four, which we will in our next episode, uh, you know, then, yeah, it's going to get even more serious because they finally do have their thing. But 
Uh, at what point did the writers room say to themselves, you know, what would be good. Let's put these two characters together. How did that happen? Well, I mean, the trick was, I mean, we started with, we wanted to do a pun far episode because we had a Vulcan on the ship. We had Tuvok. And so at first we were starting to talk about ideas about how are we going to do a Tuvok pun far episode. But then we thought that's kind of predictable, you know, and it has frankly kind of been done. You know, we, we've done the Spock version. How are we going to make it different? So we started talking about, well, again, psych, you know, Vulcans are a little psychic. So what if that got transferred essentially to a different character? And then we started looking at the other characters and we, you know, focused on Bolana because she, she also is, is kind of tamping down her emotions. You know, she also is really struggling to kind of keep control of her Klingon side. And so we thought how interesting it would be if that, that balance of hers kind of got thrown out of whack. So once we settled on Bolana being the one that essentially went through the Ponfar, then yeah, we did start talking about who would she focus on. We talked about Chakotay a little bit because they had had this, you know, past relationship that they had, you know, worked together for such a long time, but nobody really wanted to get them together. For some reason, it just, it didn't seem like, like we just didn't want to go there. And so we talked about, you know, which other characters might she go for? And we settled on Paris because we thought those two characters actually had, had a lot in common. They were both kind of the outsiders in a way. Uh, in that they're both, you know, sort of had a chip on their shoulder. Um, and it seemed like they were both kind of strong enough to balance each other. You know, they both had strong enough personalities that, that they could, they could butt heads and be equals. Hmm. Uh, and so once we decided on that, you know, it was a question of just like, you know, throwing them down in the cave together and, and letting them go at it. And really the, the trick was trying to figure out Tom's reaction. Because we knew that he he that he liked her, you know that that we had seen him sort of looking at her, and I mean she's you know obviously she's beautiful, and he you know is into beautiful women, and so uh, you know we we had seen that, and just trying to find a way for him to to be respectful. I mean, as he says, basically, you know, you're drunk. I'm not going to take advantage of you. Yeah, <laughs> and and having that play out for the episode was was the challenge. Yeah, on the topic of Bellana too, like, I feel like uh, it really wasn't until season four that Bellana got to really develop more as a character. Because I always felt like the first few seasons, it was just like the Fifty Shades of Bellana's anger. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, I'm kind of curious to hear your opinion on it, since you were one of the folks who was responsible for how she was written. Uh, I mean, was Bellana kind of challenging us just because she has all this like rage inherited to her character? See, I think that makes her interesting. Um, I, I didn't find her challenging at all. I mean, I found it really, really kind of again. I mean. Most of the time, the Starfleet people are very calm, <laughs> you know, and are very together and are very mature. And to have Bolana really had such an inner struggle that was so on the surface, um, you know, that was so obvious what she was going through and the demons she was wrestling with, I found really interesting and, and really intriguing as a writer. Now, you know, a big part of this episode was being uh, not afraid to ask for outside help when you're troubled. Uh, so yes. like, was this kind of like the subtext that was inherent into that episode or is this just something that I'm kind of just reading into it years later and maybe it just kind of worked out that way? <laughs> no, it's definitely part of part of Bolana's character, um, you know, and I guess it's true for everybody that, you know, when we, we you know, when you need help, the, you know, the, the courage to ask for it, you know, is is really kind of a challenge. 
Yeah, definitely is. And for someone like Bellana, who is like so strong willed, I mean, it, it's kind of like we're starting to show some of the vulnerabilities of her, which uh, mm-hmm. I feel like we didn't really get until we, we introduced Tom into this thing, kind of helped soften her up a little bit. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's, I, I think that both of their characters really developed well off each other. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought that the relationship really brought out, uh, brought out the best in both characters. And on the subject, too, of helping people and people helping other people, uh, it's worth pointing out, too, we mentioned uh, Jerry Taylor already. And, uh, you know, I've read that. I think it was just you and her, like, the only women in that in that team, right? So yep. uh, I'd like to hear about what it was like working with her and what you learned from her professionally and personally. Uh, well, I learned basically what it, what it was to be a good showrunner, what it was to be a good leader, um, which was to make it a safe space for everybody in the room. Um, again, you had, you had to be willing to throw out ideas that you knew were bad, (laughs) you know, okay, this isn't going to work, but, you know, and because you knew that you were never going to get, again, you know, criticized, you know, personally criticized or told that you were stupid or that your idea was dumb. And Jerry was the one that had to set those standards. Um, and she was the one that, that would find a way to steer people again, without making you feel bad but kind of take the germ of an idea and run with it. And like when, when the writers would disagree with each other, which we would a lot, you know, then she would be the kind of the referee that would step in, you know, can two of you back off for a second. This is the way we're going to go. And so she really taught me a lot about just what it was like to manage people and, and how to do it successfully. That's the end of part one, but make sure to come back next week for part two at Lisa Clink as we continue our Voyager deep dive, as well as spend some time discussing a few other Trek things that she was a part of, plus a bunch of other fun, personal, and professional stories. So don't miss it. That's it for this week's episode of Trek Untold. Until next time, don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Trek Untold, all one word. If you'd like to directly support this podcast, please consider becoming a Patreon supporter over on patreon.com slash trekuntold, which gives you access to some great perks that can't be beat. Or pick up some merchandise from our store, or use my Amazon shop link to check out all kinds of different Star Trek merchandise. Links for all these things are in the show notes. Shout out to Triple Fiction Productions for being a key sponsor of Trek Untold. Don't forget to check them out and all of the fine folks whose ads you've seen or heard on this podcast, too. If you have any questions, feedback, or comments for the show, or would like to suggest a guest or discuss sponsorship options for any of these episodes in the future, send me a message at trekuntold at gmail.com. I hope to see you here again as we uncover more untold stories from Star Trek and beyond and get to know even more amazing people who have contributed to this ever-expanding universe. Until next time, I'm Matthew Kaplowitz, and remember, fortune favors the bold. Trek Untold is sponsored by treksphere.com. Promoting fan-produced Star Trek content in all forms, is powered by the RageWorks Podcasting Network, and is affiliated with Nerd News Today.